We now conclude our broadcast day. Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan. <laughs> What's wrong? You sound uh, you sound tired. No, no, not tired. I um, I'm just as part of my new commitment to fitness. Yeah, I saw your Fitbit on. I've got a Fitbit. Yeah, that uh, was a gift, and I'm taking it very seriously. I interact with my Fitbit more than I interact with most of my friends. <laughs> And I'm uh, <clears throat> now I'm taking the stairs okay. instead of the elevator, which I feel like is mostly mostly to impress my Fitbit. Right. Mostly for the Fitbit's benefit. Uh, last night, yesterday was one of those days, Dan. I don't know if you ever have these days because you seem like somebody that gets up and does his thing. But yesterday I, I woke up and I went downstairs because I live alone, I don't have to put on clothes. <laughs> and so in this instance, I, I didn't at the beginning of the day. I didn't put on clothes. I didn't have anything to do immediately. Quick question. Are you, do you sleep in the, in the all together? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. And, uh, and then as the day wore on, I never found a reason to put on clothes. Such that by the end of the day, obviously, 1030 at night, I was, I was, I was, you know, a combination of like ashamed and proud Uh that I still had not a stitch on. I'd spent the whole day just sort of occupied, right? Never found a reason to put on a single item of clothing. And then I looked down at my Fitbit and my Fitbit said, shame you have i mean somehow walking around my house i managed to get a thousand steps okay not bad just but they, it wants you to do ten thousand right or yeah. five five or ten thousand ten thousand right I'd, so i had done a thousand naked steps <laughs> but at ten thirty at night <clears throat> i put on all my clothes uh-huh. and i said i'm gonna walk to the grocery store which is a couple of miles away all right I'm going to get some pie. Let's not. I mean, it's not like I'm going to go walk to the grocery store and get a salad. I'm going to get some pie. Yeah. But sort of as an, my, un, an undue feature for your, the walking for all the walking. Yeah, li- a little bit. I mean, a cancel pie, it out. Pie. Certainly pie has berries. Pie is, uh, is nutritious. Uh-huh. And I started off on my walk and I had my walking stick. And, uh, you know, my neighborhood is full of adventure, yeah. even, even on the calmest day. Yeah. And, uh, I got to the grocery store and realized that I had forgotten my wallet because I didn't, it's not like I was very put together. Right. <laughs> and so then I was just out and I, I laughed at my folly. How long and, of a walk was it? Well, it was 10,000 steps. I, I 5,000 stepped down and I 5,000 stepped back, but I, I had that, I had that thing where I know my neighborhood pretty well, but there are still a couple of blind spots, you know, or streets that I just sort of drive down. I don't mm-hmm. think about them as, as walking streets. I was walking down one of those and I looked, I turned and looked and there was an alley where I didn't realize there, there had been an alley. My neighborhood doesn't really have a lot of alleys. Mm-hmm. 
and here was an alley, but it was an, one of those overgrown alleys. Like with vines? Yeah, sort of. Shrub? Not all the way to shrubs. Okay. And so by the way, looked, ten, for those who don't have a Fitbit, I think they say about 10,000 steps is about five miles. Yeah, something like that. So, uh, so I stand at the entrance to this alley, which is dark and overgrown. And I think this is a wonderful thing to try and explore this overgrown alley. But the fact that it's overgrown suggests that it is not a through alley. It's blocked somewhere up the, up the, the line. Yeah. And it's dark down there. And I really sort of you know, had a little minor crisis. What do I do here? And I decided I was going to go down the alley. And I went down the alley and it was overgrown, but it went forever. And I'm, I'm looking at the backs of these houses that I know from the front I'm thinking, what lurks up here? Yeah. And I got about, I mean, a long, long quarter of a mile into this alley. Because my neighborhood is sort of old farms and stuff, and there, there were no cross streets. Mm-hmm. And then, in the, you know, I'm in a little bit, a little bit at this point, <clears throat> knee-high grass <laughs> in the dark. Okay. And then there was a critter. Uh huh. Some kind of critter had been <clears throat> napping, I guess, in the tall grass. But is this? I mean, of, is this an? Is it urban? Is it rural? What? Where? You're in like you're not in the city, right? No, it's 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 urban. It's okay. it's rural. Okay. It it is within the city, but it's a former. <clears throat> the the area was annexed into the city a long time ago, 1916. Okay. But it it was not the direction that the city was growing for a long time. The city grew to the north and to the south it was still truck farms and but then during World War II it was very close to the Boeing air airplane factory. And so when all the workers came to build the B-17s, they, they said, let's just go out to these farms and we'll build lots and lots of little salt box homes for the aircraft workers. And it sort of quadrupled the population down there. It had formerly been kind of Italian and Irish farmers. And now it was like a very mixed neighborhood and very much a like working class neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So, the, but there are remnants, lots of remnants of the old days. So you walk down the street and you think, oh, it's a 1950s neighborhood, 1940s neighborhood. And then there'll be this weird big farmhouse halfway up the block. And you go, oh, it's not a 1940s neighborhood. It used to be, it was a 1915 farm area. And that's what my house is. Anyway, so then this critter and I were in this alley, and it was a larger critter than, it wasn't just a squirrel. Squirrels aren't out at that hour anyway. Yeah. It was a nocturnal critter. Okay. And then I was really up a tree, not quite, uh, he was headed to be up a tree. And I was like, I'm in this alley, there's no way out. And I, looking up ahead, I still couldn't see where the alley was blocked, but I knew it was coming. And, uh, 
Yeah, it startled the shit out of me. Yeah, really. And and I think I probably put another 25 steps on my Fitbit just running in place with my walking <laughs> stick. Uh, but did you ever figure out what it was? No. No, he just, he was startled. I was startled. He went one direction. Fortunately, I w- <clears throat> either went the other direction or or I was 10 feet in the air at that point. That's not that's not the time you want some wolverine no to come out of the bushes no when you cuz I was already like feeling a little suspect you know what I mean waiting yeah. for some waiting for some mean dog or somebody to say who goes there but uh but it was fun it was fun to in in the middle of the night be exploring a part of my neighborhood I didn't know existed so I'm going to go back there during the day and see if I can if you had to put money on what you thought it was, what what do you think it would be? Mm. If you you really had to guess, possum. Yeah, those things are really nasty. I think that a I think that a uh, a raccoon would have behaved differently. Yeah, because raccoons was... are are relatively sociable, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have been. It almost seems like this thing was startled, like you said, and a yeah, raccoon I... is way too aware to be yep. startled ever That's by right. anything. That's right. And a raccoon would have been, he would have had his head up and he would yeah. have been checking me out. This Nothing was just, bugs me more than an animal that's watching you and you don't know that it's watching you until, you know, if you see, if, if you're using a flashlight or something or you look and then there's like an animal that's been watching you all along mm-hmm. and like it knows more than you, that's the worst. If an animal knows more than you. Really? You don't yeah. like that? I'm no. always thrilled by that. No, I don't want to be preyed upon by an animal. <laughs> Even a small that, animal. That's why I say I see you, Crow, because you walk out and you're yeah. doing your business, you're loading the trunk of your car or whatever, and the crows are just watching you. I'm all right with crows. I'm all right with things. We don't really have crows here. I'm all right with a bird watching. Well, but like if it's a mammal or a reptile or something that looks at you, looking at you. A reptile. Two of them. <laughs> Imagine, like you just shine, just you shine a flashlight, and there's like, there's like six or eight eyes just looking, oh, and you just oh. see the reflection of the eyes looking. At, Ugh, God, what's it. nothing's worse. I've seen it many times. Nothing's worse. It's one of my favorite moments where I'm like, "Hey guys, no, <laughs> it's usually deer." Ugh, I mean, if, still, if you shine deer your, terrible. <laughs> if you terrible shine animals. your light out there, and there's like a bunch of uh, a bunch of wolf eyes i think i would maybe rich i would i would find a defensible position what do they call when the eyes are in the front of the head like a like a person is that bun, not binocular eyes you know mm-hmm. what i mean where there's yeah sure where they can see in stereo. versus the one where it's just one on the side of the head like a bird or a or a, a deer or even a mouse right or a whale i don't care about those yeah those can look all they want i don't care we have but a the, we have the weirdest thing right outside of our our window there's another building across the parking lot. And every day at around like three o'clock, we will hear that stereotypical cartoon hawk sound. Like it sounds totally fake. That was more like a crow, but you know what I mean? And yeah. And, and it's like, it sounds totally fake. Like the fake sound you hear. If you were to like Google hawk sound, uh-huh. You'll you'll hear that we hear that sound and we're at the top of the building, a hawk will come down for landing. And then yesterday we heard we heard it doing the the sound, and then you could hear another hawk in the <gasps> distance. 
responding to it, calling to it, and the other hawk then landed, and they just sat side by side, pressing against each other on top of the building. Yeah, I feel like I'm in in nature here in the middle of this parking lot. Have you? Do you have pigeons? We have some pigeons, more grackles here, but we do have pigeons. Grackles. Grackles. You don't know what a grackle is? Well, we don't have grackles, but I, I think I know what a grackle is. You've got to know what a grackle is. Well, not necessarily. Not having grackles, not growing up with grackles. But, but I, I mean, a, I could, a man like you should know about grackles. Yeah, I mean, I, I could probably pick a grackle out of a bird lineup. I'm sure you could. If some, if there was a bird that committed a crime <laughs> and they put a bunch of birds together and said, which one's the grackle? Right. Not the USS grackle. No, but a grackle's like a little blue blackbird or a black bluebird. Yeah. They, yeah. they, it, I've read a lot of articles because when I first moved here, there were these birds in parking lots making these terrible, terrible sounds. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh yeah, those are, those are grackles. We have grackles here. And at first I thought, oh, they're blackbirds, but they're not. They're different from a blackbird. Definitely not a crow. We don't have crows here at all. That's weird. That's weird. Yeah, there's I no w- crows. I'm, I wonder if the crows know about it, know about Austin. <laughs> maybe. Maybe, I'll, maybe, maybe I'll start mentioning it to them. And just, or maybe not directly to them, but I'll just mention it in passing while I'm loading the trunk of my car. Mm-hmm. Boy, Austin, Texas is a nice place for a bird. <laughs> See if they pick up on it. Uh, have you ever seen that hawk... Hunt? Hawk have hunt? Ever, have you ever seen the hawk hunt something? Is this is like, like uh, I'm looking for Amanda Huggenkiss? Hawk hunt? Mm, I mean, no, hawk hunt was the guy that uh, developed the car with the movable headlights. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, like a, like a hawk. What are we talking about right a now? A hawk is a bird that kills other things. Yeah, it does. It's not some bird that sits around scavenging like uh, french no. fries right it's a it uh they are enormous killers They're as bad as cats yeah they eat cats i think they can capture a small cat and take it away mm-hmm. i've this, never seen that but i have this happened seen, to a friend of mine a, what a hawk yeah they had cat? yeah they would have cats at their i guess they owned a few acres of land and they had a house on the acres and periodically one of their this happened i think more than once that their cat would be out and then a a hawk would swoop down on it and and grab it and take it away and i'm presumably to kill and eat it Hmm. this happened multiple times that story causes me to do the one eyebrow lift no this i believe it i I totally believe yeah this is true well we have um here in the northwest we have large birds we have the bald eagles. We also have a population of peregrine falcons. Oh, I love the falcons. Yeah. And I watched one I, one day I was sitting out because there was a falcon that kind of lived in our neighborhood. And I was sitting out on the back porch smoking a cigarette back when I smoked cigarettes. Just watching the day, watching the day transpire. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, all the pigeons uh, alighted at once. You know, pigeons everywhere. And I looked up startled and this falcon nabbed a pigeon right out of the air, just like flam. Wow. And left a, like a, like a cartoon cloud of feathers. <laughs> no way. Just like pow. And then just poof, like a, like a, a big cloud of feathers. And then the, you know, these, I don't know how fast he was going a lot, 11,000 miles an hour. Uh-huh. Pow. 
And then he took the pigeon over to the roof of a neighbor's house and just took it apart right in front of me. I'm sitting there just like at that point, I was not, I was chain smoking cigarettes just out of excitement. Like, yeah, of course. Wow. And he just dismembered this pigeon. And, you know, all the other pigeons around were not pleased. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, like pig, excited pigeon sounds. And, uh, yeah, he just sat there cool as a cucumber. And I was like, it's fucking mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom here right in the backyard. That was, I mean, I, I had never seen that before. That was a, so far a once in a lifetime experience, but cloud of feathers was very funny. I felt bad for that pigeon, except for, except for how funny it was. Yeah, That's crazy. Yeah. Pretty good. So no, when I see predator eyes peering at me out of the dark, I'm pretty into it. But I think partly it is that I consider myself a top predator. Yeah. So even a bear, I mean, I definitely would. I know enough about bears not to corner one. (laughs) So if there's just some bear peering at me out of the dark, I feel like, I feel like I I would give him pause. Now, if I was, if I was covered in peanut butter or something, (laughs) it might be a different story. Yeah. I don't know. Just the idea that thing looking at you. Like there was one time. My in my first house we had like a nineteen forties uh wood frame little house in a in an up and coming but still not quite up neighborhood. More and, coming Yeah. And uh one night I you know, I came home and it was dark out and uh, you know, I walked up to the door and because I had been gone all day, the light, you know, the front porch light was still off. And I remember just walking up onto the very small little porch and putting the key in the door and you got just, I had this feeling you're, you know, you like you're, you know, you're being watched. Something is watching you and it was unnerving. Mm -hmm. And this all happened in a very short space of time. I looked sort of over my right shoulder just slightly to, to my right and sitting right on top of the porch light, which was only you know, six feet high. It was this is for smaller people in the 1950s. There was a, an owl just sitting right there. Lucky. Not sure how big the owl was in retrospect. It was probably like a, a foot, a foot tall. It was not like a, you know, like it wasn't like Hedwig or anything. It was like a smaller owl, but it just, and it's just staring at me the whole time. It saw me and heard me, you know, while I was driving down the street way in advance and knew and was just sitting there. Why it could have at any moment, it could have just flown away and gotten out of there, gotten out of the way, but it chose to just stay there and just watch. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. as I walked toward it, it stayed there and watched. Even as I was now a foot away, my head a foot away from this thing, <laughs> still just watching, watching, mm-hmm. watching. Ugh, creep me out. Mm-hmm. Creep me out. I'm thrilled even by the story, Dan. Yeah. Well, you have an owl connection. I really, really like owls and I never, never see them. They, they, I don't know why they don't reveal themselves to me. My sister has a picture of an owl that she took from a foot away. The owl, it's the same story. The owl was just sitting in the lowest branch of a tree 
like four feet off the ground. Yeah. An enormous snowy owl. Oh, wow. Those are uh, not, I'm thinking, I think of a barn owl where they have like the, the white face, but the screech owl is different from that or the, what kind are you talking about? Well, it might've been a, it beats the hell out of me what it was. It might've been a barn owl with a white face. I don't know. I haven't looked at this picture in a long time, but she walked right up on this thing and it was just staring at her and she took this incredible picture of his little face or big face. Yeah. Face as big as a pie. I got pie on the brain. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, why the hell doesn't that ever happen to me? I'm looking for owls everywhere I go. Do you not have a lot of owls in Seattle? There are so many owls, but they (laughs) they hide from me. One time I was driving through a parking lot with my uh, daughter and her mother, and my daughter was probably three and a half. We're driving through the parking lot of a mall, like the big mall, South Center Mall. Is that the one you opened? Yeah, the same one. All right. The mall has between rows of parking, it has little green strips where they've planted sort of these uh, desultory little birch trees or just little like toothpick trees along the, as some kind of indicator that they're not, that this isn't a big callous parking lot. It's a, it's a beautiful parkscape. And we're driving through looking for a place to park. And my, I hear my daughter in the back seat go, owl. And I stopped the car like, what? <laughs> it's like that's your safe word almost yeah i'm like say what (laughs) and she says owl and points and apparently in the tree immediately to our right there's an owl but as i turn to look my daughter's mother does that thing where she turns to look and leans forward blocking you blocking me and i'm like get out of the way get out of the way and she's like (laughs) What, what, what? And then the owl flies away and I see nothing, not even the tip of its wing. And I'm like, there was, there was, there was an owl right there in the middle of this parking lot. And, you know, my kid is in the back seat like owl. And uh, her mother is like, there was totally an owl. It was right there. And I was like, you, I can't believe you got, you know, because obviously like they were both blocking me. Mm-hmm. Somehow it wasn't meant to be. And it's, it's another day where there was a mysterious owl right there and it escaped, it escaped me. I'm looking, for, I swear to you, Dan, I go out at night looking for owls. I hear them sometimes. Oh, if I go for a walk in my neighborhood and pretty much any night, especially in the cooler months, but pretty much any time I'll, I'll see a couple out and they're big. They're oh, big. This is, like this is driving me crazy. Six foot wingspans. I mean, talking about huge huge owls that they they're hooting and if you try to sort of like if you figure out what tree they're in you go under the tree then and you just stand there long enough they'll eventually just leave the tree and of course they're silent so they just you just see these wings flying over across the moon in the sky this is driving me crazy any night i can go out tonight and see 10 owls yeah i even have a barn like if there's a (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to just try to to get, to draw them in. It's so unfair. It's right in the name <laughs> barn owl. Yeah. No, not a single person in my neighborhood has a barn, but I have a barn. No owls. I see raccoons mm-hmm. stacked on top of each other, fifty high. <laughs> but I don't see any owls. Yeah. It's maddening, except when you know when they're in my bedroom, in the form of my pillows. I see, I see owls in that case. 
We would like to thank Wealthfront. Why? Because we want you guys to invest your money. We are concerned here at Roadwork about your future financial stability. We would like for you to have a secure financial future. And the only way to do that is to start saving money. But you don't want to just save money. You want to invest. But if you're like me, you don't want to spend a million years researching what kind of investment to do. You don't want to spend a million years going from one wealth management professional to another and finding out that they're all going to charge you at least 1% per year in management fees if you're lucky enough to already have about a million dollars to invest. That's not most people. Wealthfront, they make it possible for you to start investing with as little as 500 bucks, though most of their clients have about $60,000 invested. They're managing $3 billion. $3 billion in client assets. It's pretty incredible, and uh, it's, it's because they do a good job, and they only charge an advisory fee of 0.25% per year on assets over $10,000. Zero management fees. Pretty impressive, right? But for listeners of this show, if you go to wealthfront.com slash 5 by 5 wealthfront.com slash 5 by 5 they'll manage your first $15,000 entirely free of charge for life means in addition to never paying commissions or any hidden fees, you also won't pay management fees on the first $15,000 you have invested. So go check them out. Wealthfront.com slash five by five. Well, in, in preparation for, uh, for this show in general, I watched uh, rewatched close encounters of the third kind. Whoa. Yeah. Just to kind of brush up for, you know, topics that might come up. And, I think it holds up. I think it's still a good movie. It's an, it's an incredible movie. I was, I watched, uh, for some reason I was at the end of the day, after I got done with my walk, I sat in the bathtub and started watching YouTube excerpts of Goodfellas. Oh yeah. It's a great movie. I don't know why, but, um, but Goodfellas really holds up. Oh, it absolutely does. I think yeah. it's one of those timeless, timeless movies that we'll be able to watch in many years to come. And I don't know if, if it's because it, in a way you could almost look at it as like a period piece, right? Mm-hmm. In that it, it takes place in a time. And so they were recreating that time for the movie, as well as what was sort of present day ish for the movie too. Does that make sense? I don't know. There's something about that when they do that, style of movie i just think that i think that's an example of one that it's not so much that it's capturing things of that time that and that's what i felt like watching um watching close encounters is that there there are things that are just so very of of the time it, it really is like a window into that time same thing with poltergeist which i'm also re-watching now where because of probably because the stranger things thing is making me kind of revisit these movies from from my youth but looking back at them, they very, you know the beginning of Poltergeist, as I'm sure you remember, it shows the television sign-off that happened, I guess, at midnight or two in the morning, where it would play the Star Spangled Banner, and then the TV channel would just go off the air, and you get static on the channel. Because who's, who, who wants to watch TV at past midnight? Like, what's on? Nothing. Let's just cut the channel. Do you remember that? Dan, I was just thinking about this two days ago. Really? I don't know what the situation was, but I was, I was somewhere and all of a sudden I saw that American flag waving. Yeah. Ba, 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 ba. 
we now conclude our broadcast day and just remembering all there were there were a couple of different versions of that like tv is going off now and if you have stayed up this late to see the american flag you are some kind of uh like night zombie yeah right because as soon as as soon as the uh the anthem stopped playing and the and the flag went away that was it. It was static. Yep. Yep. Until you, six in the morning or something. And you just sat there watching it like, like poltergeist. Yep. Uh, I remember the first time I saw it, it spooked the hell out of me. But in a, in Alaska, there was a, an Alaskan version of it <clears throat> called Alaska is, and they would play Puckle Bell's cannon <laughs> and do a slideshow and this is before Ken Burns, so it wasn't a Ken Burns slideshow. It was just a static slideshow, <laughs> right? Of like pictures of fireweed and puffins and mountains and and uh, people on snowmobiles and bush pilots, and and it lasted the length of a recording of Paco Bell's Cannon. And it was my first exposure to that song, and I thought that it had been composed oh, for, for yeah Alaska for Alaska is which also concluded the broadcast day. I don't remember what channel it was. I feel like it might've been even the PBS channel, but but it's hard to believe that I would have been watching PBS until midnight as a kid. But yeah, uh, Paco Bell's Cannon. And then the, we now conclude our broadcast gay American flag. Yep. Why was, why was I thinking of this? And why are you, why were you thinking? I don't know. I don't know why it's weird. one of those electrical yes. moments. Yeah. But I, there's something very haunting about it. I mean, there, it, it would be impossible today to the idea that there, a TV station is just going off the air and just showing static. <laughs> Nobody could possibly understand that that hadn't seen it. I, well, and there and were it only three channels. Really, yeah, there were only three channels anyway. But it, the, the, the idea of that, it seems so silly today. Like, wait a minute. There were only three channels, and after midnight, they just went off and just was static? Yes. You know, you'd have to put on AM radio to hear anyone. I still, I still wonder why stores close at five. I, I, I was having this conversation with myself this very morning <laughs> because sometimes I lay in bed and imagine, you know, I wake up and I'm awake, but my eyes are still closed. And I start thinking about if I were to build a giant sort of housing development, how I would do it. Because one of the things that infuriates me most is a poorly designed housing development. What kind of conclusions did you come to in that? Well, I think about it a lot. So it was, it's more that I was refining, um, you know, refining my, my big idea, uh, but I, I was imagining sort of this arcade. I always feel like if you're going to have a, if you're going to have a, a housing development, you're going to want an arcade, right? Like, like a video you, video game arcade. No, like a uh, like a place where there's a, oh, like the so old you, fashioned video i mean uh, a non-video arcade the concept of like the little shops and the little 
yeah, walkabout. Right. Uh, you you build a big development on on a block, uh-huh. but then there's a passageway in the middle of the of the development that's covered with a big glass arch, and then in and it's not accessible to cars. And then in there are all these little sidewalk cafes, and and then the people whose apartments are above it have windows that look down into the arcade. Mm-hmm. Uh, with little balconies covered with flowers and it's open to the air. So even in the winter, this arcade is kind of, you know, it, it's uh, it's still, it's an active pass through. I think in mine, it would have heated floors so that in the winter it was still kind of pleasant enough in there that, that you would stroll, you know, it's kind of an outdoor event to go through this place you know in anchorage alaska now there are sections of downtown where they have heated the sidewalks so because in the dead of winter it used to be that you would if you were out walking outside the sidewalks were just crusted like little ice mounds right so this way they would melt the ice off of it so you're the ice is melted yeah so the sidewalks are are dry and clear even even when you know when it's ice storming around you so I, anyway, I have this vision of this kind of Italianate, uh, big apartment building, but with these arcades running through the middle rather than the sort of normal way they do it, which is they build a big facade and then behind their sort of air shafts, like the air shaft is the worst waste of space, waste of space, but they have to build them because you can't, you know, you can't have an apartment that doesn't have like a little bit of cross flow. But why would you build a wasted air shaft when you could build a beautiful arcade in the backs of these apartments and give people, you know, a, a pleasant place to be? Anyway, so I was thinking of that uh, when I woke up this morning. And uh, this is, Dan, this is the rare moment when I have no idea where this story began. That almost never happens. I feel like I feel like I need to. I need to moderate my medication or something. <laughs> are you are you still on anything? What the hell was I just talking about? Yeah, I don't I don't know. My producer found the uh hawk that we have red-tailed hawk is what it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there is a post a series of posts of people who I guess are in the buildings right here around me. Uh showing pictures that they've taken out of their windows of their office buildings, like right here in our complex, uh, posting pictures of, of, of maybe these two Hawks that are there or else they have their own Hawks on, on their building. Do, do they have names? The Hawks? Uh, no, I don't seem to have named them, but I'll put them into our, into our show notes if people want to see the pictures. We would like to thank our first sponsor today. It is backblaze. Backblaze is the best. I use Backblaze myself personally. What do I use it for? It's the same thing I think everyone should use it for, which is you need to back up your stuff. Backblaze does an amazing job of this. You protect your data by having a copy somewhere else, not on a hard drive sitting on your desk. That's useful. But what happens if your computer and hard drive uh, are both stolen or if there's some kind of terrible disaster? Your stuff is going to be gone. Well, Backblaze takes care of all that unlimited native backup solutions for Mac and PC. You don't even have to give them a credit card. There's no risk. Free 15-day trial. Everything gets backed up. And you can access the data that's backed up with 
an iOS app, an Android app, and of course, restore it back onto your computer. They've got Web Restore for quick downloads anywhere that you have an internet connection. You can even restore by mail. You got a ton of stuff you don't want to wait. Purchase a hard drive with all your data on it, and they overnight it to you via FedEx. You can return a restore by mail drive within 30 days and get a refund. How cool. It's really simple to get started. You go to backblaze.com slash roadwork. No gimmicks, no additional charges. Five bucks a month. Unlimited, unthrottled, off-site backup. Again, that URL, they, in order so, for them to credit the show, backblaze.com slash roadwork. And you're going to get a free 15-day trial just by going to that URL, backblaze.com slash roadwork. Thanks very much to Backblaze for making the show possible. Dan, this is driving me nuts. Like our listeners, of course, are going to be able to say, oh, you were talking about this and that was the tangent you went on. Mm. Uh, well, but, we were talking about the American flag. I brought it up about poltergeist. Right, the American poltergeist, flag. The American flag, the TV's going S- off the air. Yep, the static. Static. <sighs> yeah. The, the static is what's happening in my brain right now. Yeah. Oh. Well, it's... It's gone, I guess. This is this is this is a really low podcast moment for me. Two hundred and fifty podcasts I've done. Yeah, you've done a lot of. Them. I almost I almost never forget what I'm talking about. Well, well, while you regroup, I would like to read some uh, feedback that we have received via email. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I'll I'll read this one. This one is from uh, Jeffrey in Pismo Beach. Hi. Long-time Roderick listener and big fan of the show, I actually prefer this one over the maniacal musings of Roderick on the line, though that one has given me the greater laughs. Okay. okay. Right away. Yeah. A little bit of a kick in the knee uh, in the form of praise, but yes, go. Yes. Any, anyways, I have a question for John. Anyways. Anyways. I can tell you, I can tell you were offended by anyways. A little, a little bit. Plus, there's no, it's not even a comma after it. It's just anyways, I have a question for John Colon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you think about the comparison of modern day abortion culture and Hitler's Third Reich culture? No apostrophe Whoa. on Hitler. You me- he does not deserve one. You <laughs> mention that you do not particularly find any one life to be sacred, and yet Hitler considered many single lives to be subhuman. My main <laughs> question is this: colon. Oh, how yeah, do yeah, you yeah. Di- how do you distinguish the differences between the two enough? so that you can claim Hitler to have done absolute wrong and still be okay with abortion culture. Thanks so much for reading this. Very interested in hearing y'all's opinion. <laughs> abortion culture. Much love from Pismo Beach, Jeffrey. Uh, well, Jeffrey, this is a, this is a, um, a I, well, I'm going to tell a story that, that illustrates kind of a, a crucial moment for me. Okay. Which was in, uh, what I guess would have still been, I would still consider them my college years. I should have graduated from, if I went straight into college out of high school, I should have graduated from college in 1990. Now that's not what happened at all. But in 1990, I was living in Washington, DC and, uh, and there were some other kids from Anchorage who were also living in Washington, DC. And it's not exactly like we had, a little Alaska brotherhood, but I had a good friend who worked for, I worked as a page for our, um, for our Alaska Senator Ted Stevens. 
the famous internet is a series of tubes. All right. Senator. Uh, my friend Peter worked for him. And then uh, there was a, there was a kid whose father was a former mayor of Anchorage as my uncle was a former mayor of Anchorage. And um, his father's name was Tom Fink. And his son's name was Tony Fink. And Tony was living in, living in Washington, DC and working as some kind of not page, but he was, you know, he was working in a, some government capacity. He was living in a much nicer house than Peter and I were. And we went to visit him one time because Tony Fink and Peter had gone to high school together and we were smoking pot and uh, hanging out with Tony Fink. And we got into a debate about abortion. And the thing about the Finks was that they were a Catholic family. And Tony Fink had, really, really dialed in his abortion argument because it was, it was important to them and they had just sort of in their, in a Catholic culture had really dotted their T's and crossed their eyes mm -hmm. to have a kind of iron, a very tight argument. And, and he, he led me into this argument in a very Socratic way, asking me simple questions you know, well, don't you think that, don't you think that babies are human? Well, yes, of course I think babies are human, you know, and I'm very stoned. <laughs> and I'm also pretty smug. Was because, he also pretty stoned or was oh, he? Oh, we were both very okay. stoned. But the thing is, if you are stoned and you have an argument that you know already, you can perform that argument pretty well. If you are stoned and you are being asked to come up with an argument, it's a lot harder right, or to defend a position that you're not used to defending. Yeah. And you know, I came, I came from a liberal culture where, uh, where it was presumed that a woman's right to choose was the higher order of good. And so I felt pretty confident in, in being able to defend it, but he sort of Socratically marched me through this series of premises where I was like, and, and at, at that point I, I had read Plato, but I hadn't incorporated the lessons into my style. Right. Really. You know, I had, <laughs> I had not become a Socratic debater. I admired it. Boy, it's a good, it's a great technique. Lead them down a primrose path. But we arrived at we arrived at a place where he had sort of marched me along this series of small conclusions, small concessions. And he arrived at a place where he said, so therefore you surely believe that human life is sacred. And at that point, the word sacred did not have a cultural, it wasn't a, a culturally loaded term for me and my people. Like it seemed like a general term that meant valuable or, you know, like, um, because yeah, because he did a similar thing. Like, well, it's against the law to kill somebody. Yes. You don't think it's right to kill somebody. Surely. No, of course not. You know, I'm just like, no, <laughs> well, Hitler liked to kill people and you don't want to be Hitler. No, of course I don't want to be Hitler. <laughs> Hitler's killing people was bad. 
and babies are humans, ergo, killing babies is bad. And we arrived at a we arrived at this human life is sacred premise, and I conceded that well, certainly human life is sacred. It didn't it didn't mean the same thing to me that it did to him. And then I realized I was boxed in. Yeah, that I'd followed this progression of of small premises, and I had been argued into a place where there was very little room to maneuver. And Tony Fink was very self-satisfied about having put me in this place. And I was not used to being argued into a corner by somebody. Yeah. This was very debate team, but you know, Catholic debate squad way of like getting me (laughs) backing me into a stairwell. And I was devastated by this experience. Just like that. It took my breath away. Because in my stoned swirl of thoughts, I was like, but, 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 uh, er," and I was trying to walk it back to the point where I had agreed with a premise that was false and I couldn't see, like you you couldn't see the way out, right? Couldn't, not only couldn't I see the way out, but I couldn't see how I'd gotten to this point. (laughs) And so it took a long time for me, you know, later on, like I, I, at that moment, I wanted to leave this stupid party that only had three people at it and did not want to go hang out with Tony Fink anymore, you know, like, because there was very much a, uh, there was very much a sense where he just, he, Mike drops didn't exist at the time, <laughs> but he like sheathed his saber and said, can I make you another drink? And I was just like, <laughs> no. <laughs> Go fuck yourself, Tony Fink, for having bested me at this single combat. Um, but in answer to your question, there's like the idea that the the millions upon millions of fetuses that have not come to term constitute a genocide is an article of faith among some anti-abortion people that it's the world. In fact, the greatest genocide in history, there is a, that presumes, I guess that each one of those little creatures has a soul and that that soul lives in space in heaven. And it descends into this, corporeal form and that to terminate it is to send that soul back to the soul hopper unbaptized or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is one of the great challenges of being a, a humanist and uh, which is to, from, from a humanist standpoint to, understand what the value of an individual human life is and how that, you know, it isn't simply a matter of law because the law, the wall of law changes. It moves from hither to thither. Obviously as a humanist, you don't condone 
experimenting on children in a concentration camp. Of course. But you do, you do weigh the consequences and you say an unwanted child, an unwanted child is worse than the, the, the simple act of sort of, I mean, a quarter of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. You know, it's not that it's not that the natural system of having babies is some kind of uh, magic where it, where every every child is sacred. It's a natural process where it's like, no, this this baby isn't viable. Off it goes back into the stream back into the, into the cycle of blood. And it is a challenge and it becomes a rigid position in our culture because we have a binary political culture here, but also it is a question of law ultimately. But, you know, in my, in my own personal life, I have seen people both, have children they didn't want and people who had uh, abortions. And in neither case is it simple. I've never, I've never known a person to have an abortion where there wasn't a tremendous emotional conflict about it, but to have a child where the, where the child is not a pleasure uh, where the child has, it's not just a question of like interrupting the mother's youth, Mm -hmm. but like, a child raised in an environment where it isn't appreciated. Mm-hmm. It's like a bomb going off in a family and in, in our own, you know, it, like in our culture, right? This, and the law suggests, the law presumes that the state has a responsibility to itself. And it, right now we've made a convincing argument that the state has a, re- a responsibility to protect its citizens and their desire, their, de- their, uh, uh, their response, uh, their ownership of themselves. Right. But from a humanist standpoint, the question of how to, where to draw that line and how to value an individual human life and how to v- value the collective humanity it is very tricky. I wrestle with it all the time, but I don't think that a, that a fetus is sacred. I do think it should be illegal to kill people in concentration camps. And I think that the two are not analogous. They're, you know, they, they, they only superficially and, and very, very superficially resemble the, cho- the choice is, is very superficially um, in the same category. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that from the perspective of like us two guys answering a question from this guy, right? Are we even eligible to answer it? Well, you know, I, uh, I don't subscribe to the belief that, uh, that, uh, that there are questions that one gender or one race can't answer. You know, I'm not trying to answer that on behalf of women, but, you know, the, there is no analog for men uh, like uh, to carrying a baby, right? There's no comparable thing. And so 
there's no way to, to frame it in a way that a man can possibly understand. Right. Right. That, that even if it was a situation where the, the, the state mandated that, that, that when a woman, when a woman got pregnant, a man, the man responsible would by law be forced to marry her and by law would not be able to divorce her for the rest of his life. <laughs> Imagine that law. Yeah. Now that was, that was a certainly a, a moray before, but imagine that it was a law because in the case of a woman having a baby, uh, if abortion were outlawed, that that's effectively the, that's effectively the result, right? Not only does yeah. she have to carry the baby in herself and give birth to it and, and, you know, with all the attendant relationship to it, but for the rest of her life, right? It's a child for the rest of for her life. And mm-hmm. if that were the law for men, that if you, if you impregnate someone, you must immediately marry them and stay married to them under penalty of, uh, under penalty of being accused of a crime equal to murder. Right. Right. Well, there, there'd be no, there'd be no debate, right? Men wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, they'd have all kinds of rationalizations for why that wasn't equivalent or wasn't possible. And so I think that the, the argument, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to direct my uh, criticism at, at Catholics specifically, because of course evangelicals have seized on abortion as their cause celeb. Mm-hmm. It was the Catholics that started it. Let's be honest. I think evangelicals back in the fifties didn't it didn't it wasn't even on their radar but they seized upon it too as like a a way to assert themselves but as a secular person you know people with religion are used to religion mandating things to them right both proscribing behavior and prescribing behavior and so it doesn't seem unusual or they're, they're, you know, they're used to thinking that there is this sort of heavenly authority and, and to whatever degree they, they resist or allow for that authority to accrue to the state. They're at least accustomed to it. But for a secular person who has this much more independent relationship with the state for a woman who has grown up without religion and who has also effectively thrown off the yoke of having her father decide what she's going to do with her life or her brothers or, you know, any man deciding what she's going to do. The notion of being compelled when she, when the question of what, what, uh, what an embryo really is, whether it is a, whether it does have a soul, I mean, when the question is ambivalent or mm-hmm. when the question is, is still like science has no comment on it, uh-huh. right? To feel compelled by the state to spend the rest of her life in a, or, you know, to have her, the, the conditions of her life utterly change where there's no commensurate responsibility placed on the father. It's a, obviously you would rebel. Right. And that's why it's become such a what, what he what the writer is describing as abortion culture, mm-hmm. 
which is a real, it's a, it, it started as a real defensive culture because, because what you would call uh, anti-abortion culture was so aggressive and so militant and so violent that, you know, women sort of circled the wagons and said, you know, they're just holding that ground. You can't tell me what to do with my body. And that is a, that's a shorthand. And I just, I always encourage people to just consider what the, what really that means, you know, that the, that the state acting as a moral agent is making this determination on, on behalf of this individual person with lifelong consequences where the, where the evidence is inconclusive. I mean, that's, there's no, there's no comparable, like the evidence of murder is pretty conclusive, but to terminate a pregnancy in the first month or two months, yeah. what, what, is, what, find me a scientist that will say anything about it. Really? I think the closest you get is when you read things that, that say that a fetus can react in a certain way or that because the nerves are developed at a certain stage, whether that's three months or six, I forget, but that at a certain point it has nerves. So therefore it can, it can feel and therefore it can feel pain and it can visibly react to stimuli like that. And then there are people who would say, well, scientifically we we can show that. Right. We can right. show that, that it, it kind of looks like a person and it reacts in a way that looks like it's afraid or, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You can draw a little smiley face on it too and say that it's happy. Well, but you know, it's not afraid. It is. How do you, how do you know? How do we know? How do we really know? I mean, a sunflower turns to face the sun. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the sunflower loves the sun. Yeah. Can an insect, can an insect feel fear? Do you think? I do not. I do not think that an insect feels fear. I do think that a cow feels fear. Can a fish feel lonely? I don't think a fish can feel lonely. Even if it's it's, used to being in a, a shoal or a school and now it's alone. I think that a fish cannot feel lonely. I think that lonely is abstract enough that a fish, a fish can probably um, acknowledge that it is alone. Yeah. But I think it would feel that only in the sense that it has, it now is vulnerable to predators. Right. I think it would register it. I mean, I don't think a fish can feel fear either. I think a fish is, I think a fish can, um, it's very interesting that we're talking about what a fish can feel. Well, it's on my mind because I was, I was in the fish store the other day looking at the fish and one of the guys that worked there, cause I'm trying to figure out what to do with this one tank that I have. And he mm-hmm. said, well, you could get one of these guys and put it in there. He said, it's so big that you'd ha- you couldn't have more than one in the size of the tank that you have. But, and I said to him, I said, well, wouldn't wouldn't the fish be lonely in there? And he kind of he kind of put his hand up to his chin and he sort of scratched his beard a little and looked at the fish and said, 
I don't think, and he's <laughs> he's owned this fish store for like thirty years. Yeah, and he said, I don't, and he really like he was really thinking. He wasn't humoring me. Right. He says, I don't think that fish feel those kinds of things. I don't think that they are capable of that. Right. And I would cede I would cede that authority, the fish fish psychology, to the man that's owned the fish store for thirty years. Yeah. The thing is that a fish isn't lonely. A dog isn't lonely. It's people who are lonely. And that's why they get a fish or a dog. <laughs> but but I, I yeah, I, I think that on the on the sliding scale of uh emotions clearly like a a um a gorilla who is sequestered in a cage feels a wide variety of emotions mm-hmm. and even your precious dog if you're listening and have a precious dog like the dog is the dog does not want to be left alone all day but i've had enough dogs and a few dogs that I had a dog that ran away one time. And a month later, a girl at my school said, did you lose a dog? And I said, I did lose a dog. And she said, I think your dog is living with us now. And this was, she lived two miles from my house. And so I went with her after school and there was my dog, Barney, who was living with this girl. And Barney had been my best friend. Yeah, absolutely. Barney and I were inseparable. Uh, Barney had dug a hole under the fence and had gone on a walkabout. He might have even followed me to school because she lived much closer to school. And Barney had gotten lost and was found in this cul-de-sac by this nice girl and her nice family. And obviously they were feeding Barney well. And my mom had a philosophy of dogs that they sort of lived outside. Right. And this was a house where Barney clearly was um, living on the couch and people were feeding him bonbons. And I walked into that cul-de-sac and I said, Barney. And he very excitedly jumped up tail wagging and went on the other side of the car from where I was standing. And I said, Barney. And I walked around the side of the car and Barney walked around the other side of the car. We were playing the game where I was chasing him around the car. And very clearly Barney had found a new life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, it, was, it had only Were been a Were you crushed by that? Well, so I'm I think I would have been. Eight years old. Yeah. Right? Eight years old and a very, very emotional, um, sensitive, and nostalgic little boy. Yeah, of course. And I'd been absolutely traumatized by losing Barney. He dug a hole. I, I searched the neighborhood. I put up flyers. I went, walked around until the sun went down calling Barney, Barney <sighs> for days until my mom said, Barney's gone. Mm. He's been hit by a car. Something terrible has happened to Barney and, you know, crushed. Here it was a month and a half later and Barney was actively avoiding not only me touching him, but avoiding my gaze. And after I chased him around the car a couple of times, the little girl was like, sort of like, like, you sure this is your dog? Well, sort of like, huh? And I was like, huh? And it wasn't even that I felt betrayal. I didn't feel that Barney. I mean, you know, this is the type of thing that a kid would break down and cry. Yeah. 
probably would have if any adults had been standing around. But it was just me and this other eight-year-old girl. And I looked at her and she looked at me. And I didn't feel like betrayed exactly. I was just like, oh, well, uh, I guess Barney wants to live with you now. And so. Oh, my God. uh, Great. So, like, uh, fuck you, Barney. And, like, I think I even shook hands with her. And she was like, we really love Barney. I was like, yeah, well, you know, uh, great. And I just walked away very sanguine because I understood something fundamental, which is that dogs are idiots. (laughs) And what you perceive to be their love is just idiotic, you know, native companionship, native feeling that bred into them uh, companionship qualities. Right. It is a, it is a, a survival technique almost. Well, yeah, it's not a need or even it's just that this is what they're, this is what we have made them right by, by generations of breeding. We pick the puppies that love us, that appear to love us and we drown the puppies that do not appear to mm-hmm. love us. And the, the exception being dogs like huskies where we don't care if they love us because they're pulling sleds, you know, like true working dogs. We don't, we don't, give as much of a care about yeah. whether or not they're affectionate or happy to, even right. All you have to do is see a working dog, a true working dog. And I don't mean one of those Australian shepherds that wants to chase a ball all afternoon because they appear to be very interested in you, but a dog like a, like a Husky where their eyes are on the horizon all the time. And you can obviously make a bond with a Husky, but if you leave the gate open, uh, nine out of 10 times a Husky is gone. And so, and Barney was like a mutt. He was part pit bull, part lab. He was the ultimate kid dog, but he had found a, he'd, he'd found a slightly better existence, right? Not even, it's not like he was, it had, had gone to doggy heaven. He just found a better family and, uh, and his allegiance had, had shifted. And, and so there was something, it was very strange. I mean, I, when my Guinea pig died, I cried for, 10 days. Mm. But when Barney left me for this little girl, I was like, huh? Well, a lesson learned about dogs, I guess. So yeah, on the grand spectrum of things, I do not feel like a six week old cluster of cells replying to a poke of a, of an instrument mm-hmm. by, by recoiling the same way a clam would. I don't think that that's quite evidence that the child is in, is already like uh, a little angel that has been delivered into this, into this little neuron or, uh, you know, little cluster of nerves and that it's crying out in pain. And that's all, that's all this emotional appeal. So much of the, the case uh, that the anti-abortionists use to uh, to make their case to the wider public is very very emotional language, you know. Uh, that not just life begins at conception, but all of this sort of like you're murdering babies. Just the just the um, just the the name pro-life suggests that right. You're making a choice between life and death. Well, no, that the other side is anti-life. Oh. Right. I mean, who isn't pro-life? 
it isn't like it isn't a question of pro versus anti-life. It's a question of are you do you have safe and legal abortions or do you have do you make abortions illegal because you're not ever going to do away with it. And I you know I've heard terrible stories from my mother about the the era before abortion was legal. Girls going into these back room medical facilities and bleeding to death because they you know because the job was done by an uh, an un uh, like a like a a tradesperson in an unclean environment you know there there's no there will always be women who do not want to carry their baby to term and the question is do you make that procedure safe and uh and try and take away some of the incredible stigma in addition to all the emotional pain of having an abortion or do you make it into a do do you do you turn the white hot lens of of christian shame on those people to no good end yeah you know what i mean so it is it it ends up being a it's very complicated and it's a question of you pursue the course that has the broadest social good both to both in terms of the individual freedom of women 50% of the population and also like what benefit does the state accrue by compelling these births you know listening to you talk about it it's you know this is by the way for 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 people who are listening this is the kind of feedback that we frequently get oh do we get this kind of feedback? yeah we get this a lot uh we also get a lot of emails about the way the show ends and <laughs> but there's a lot of there's a lot of pushback on on the, particularly the sort of secular humanist ruminating we, that we, get, do. we do get a lot of emails on that and i i picked this one because i think it it sort of represents sort of the 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 overall kind of a vibe that a lot of them get and the thought provoking questions. I think that they looking for your answers on, I don't, I don't think it's a fair comparison at, at all. I'm not that familiar with modern day abortion culture. There isn't one. I, I mean, <laughs> that, I, that is a non, that's a, no, that's a pejorative yeah. sort of, uh, argument baiter. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I do know a little bit about the Third Reich as much as I can, you know, stand to know. But, you know, I think he's he's maybe more focusing in on the fact that, you know, when, and when did you say that you didn't, when did you first say that you don't find an individual <laughs> life to be sacred or something like that? And what does sacred mean? It's, it's such a, I feel like the, I, I, I stop at the word sacred because i don't feel that i'm even qualified to understand the word like i stop at that point right well and and sacred isn't really as much a part of jewish religion as it is christian religion yeah that it's it i mean we understand the concept like the torah for example would be a sacred thing in the temple and uh you yeah, know you don't want to you you, you want to keep the uh you want to keep the torah off the ground for instance. things like that sure uh, and like they that, don't want you to touch the Torah when you're reading from it. So they give you this little, that, I, I know I've told Merlin about this, 
It's called a yod. Mm-hmm. You know about this? I do know about it. I, I remember when I was having my bar mitzvah, I was up on the, uh, up on the, you know, the stage thing and they put the Torah down there and you get to like read from the, the Torah and they're like, no, listen, you can't, you can't touch a Torah. I'm like, you're mm-hmm. touching it. He's like, yeah, but you're not supposed to touch it. Yeah, like, okay. Touch the Torah. And he's like, well, what we have is we have this little thing called a yod, which is a pointer for those who are not familiar with it. It's usually silver. Sometimes they're gold. And it is a metal, it looks like a magic wand. And at the end of the wand, instead of just a point, it usually has, and this is the coolest thing ever, it's a little hand mm. with a single first finger just pointing. Mm. Isn't that nice? And you hold this like a wizard, and you <laughs> use it to point, and it, it, this lets you follow along so you don't lose your place. Right. And I got to use that thing when I was getting, that was the highlight of my bar mitzvah besides the money. And, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, there, we have this concept of sacred, but I, I'm, I'm on a personal level. I don't connect with the kind of the dedication or the religious purpose or the veneration and the, all of that stuff that like with the concept of divinity and uh, that's not really something that I was, I learned. So I don't, you know, but I think if you take the religious context out of the term sacred, if that even makes sense, I, I interpret the way that we often use sacred in, uh, in like, in daily conversation. Um, if you I do. think if we do, I think it's more used in the term, uh, like sacrosanct almost where uh, yeah it's it's super important sacrosanct and sacred have Merged. common root yeah have a, well have a common root i mean they mean very similar things yeah but I, I so i don't i don't know i i don't uh i like you i've known uh women who've had abortions and it's like you said it it, it it's not uh, an easy decision by any means and i think it's something that is is one of probably the toughest decisions ever. And I think there's this great question in everyone's mind that perhaps will never be answered is, is it, you know, is it a human being from the moment of conception or, or not? And at what point does that change happen? Was it Wednesday, not Wednesday and Thursday and now on Thursday it is, you know, like, is it, is it that easy to define? So you can't answer that. So then you say, well, it's, then it's always a life of some kind, you know, like this morning. Uh, and I, no, I'm not about to compare a fish from my fish tank to a human life, but bear with me for a second. This morning, uh, one of my little lemon tetras was, uh, I don't know if it was attacked by one of the angel fish or something because they're in this breeding mode and it had like a gash in its side and it wasn't doing very well. So I had to euthanize the fish, the little lemon tetra. And the way most people have to euthanize a fish you don't want to like just take it out of the water and let it suffocate. So you, you put it in a bag and you put it in with water in the bag and then you put it into the freezer and it just, the fish sort of goes to sleep and then dies and then it is frozen in a block of ice. Just like an Eskimo, like an older Eskimo who is realized that they can no longer be of service to the village. They walk out into the snow, they sit down and they sleep. They sleep forever. 
So I had to do that to the fish. And I felt very bad about doing that to the fish, but I was, it wasn't going to make it. And I know that because the angels have attacked another couple of the fish in the same way. And they just got progressively worse over days and days. And so I've helped it, helped it onto the next world. But I still feel bad about it, right? And meanwhile, like, you know, I might go have a piece of salmon for dinner. It's still a fish, same thing, right? But I think that's kind of what I'm getting to is that we have this different framing. Like this fish was in this tank and like I fed it and it grew in the tank, you know? And that's different from however that piece of salmon appeared on my plate at the restaurant. And, you know, when I was really, really into my uh, Buddhist practice for many years, like really, really into it. Um, I was like vegetarian and I couldn't, you know, couldn't, the idea of consuming an animal was, just, I couldn't, couldn't even imagine doing it. And, you know, all of the, the concepts of the precepts of, you know, not causing harm and all of this was like really on the forefront of, of my mind. So, yeah, you know, I've never been in a situation where an abortion was in a, you know, directly was was something that even was an issue. So I don't know, but I think the comparison of that to what an, an insane person did through the, you know, in, in World War II, like that just doesn't, I just don't even connect with that. So, but it got us talking, didn't it? I mean, the <clears throat> comparisons to Hitler, genocide, Saying things like abortion culture, those are, those are dog whistles or they're, they're rhetorical devices. Just as sort of Tony Fink backed me into a corner. If you, if you accept those presumptions, right. Then, and, and, and there are plenty of people whose argument sort of, um, assumes those things. Or, I mean, if you assume, if you assume that, that uh, life begins at conception and that that uh, human life is sacred, then yeah, you're, you're very comfortable using words like genocide and it's very hard to dislodge you from that position right there. The, the, the writer and a lot of our fans who share that mentality are going to, are going to find me to be equivocating. Um, and because their belief is, is steadfast, right? I mean, the word sacred has a, 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 a total connection to God. There isn't a use, there isn't really a use of sacred that doesn't not just imply God, but directly reference God. And in all honesty, if uh, people that believe that all life is sacred and would not harm a tree or a cow or a uh, bee, I mean, and I'm not talking about vegans who uh, for the most part, I don't find vegans to be generally espousing a theory of life connected to God and sacredness. Uh, Whereas Buddhists like, or, you know, and Buddhist vegans, let's, let's put them in a separate category. (laughs) But like, if you come to me and say, all life is sacred, I'm much more, I, I, I understand that as a philosophy and I don't share it. I don't share that belief, but it's a, it's a belief of sort of life being this uh, phenomenological 
it's the thing that isn't duplicated other places that makes the whole earth a kind of single organism and damage to it is unholy. Like I can get with that. I can sit and go like, yeah, right. I dig. But if you're, if your philosophy is that cows are dumb animals to be ground up and eaten and that our enemies are a threat to our borders and so we can machine gun them to death at our at our pleasure right we can't have it both ways right you know and apes can be used in laboratories to put lipstick on their eyeballs but a a 40 cell human embryo is a sacred gift from god the presumption is that there is a god that 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 human souls are waiting in god's arms at and will return to god's arms like they're just that it is just as insane a uh, progression of presumptions as any i can think of right so if you come to me and say how can you kill babies because every leaf on every tree is a thing of surpassing beauty and uh, you know and and my philosophy is that all humans should live in total concert with uh with the the earth and we should you know we should each leaf of lettuce before we eat it we should thank it for its service yeah i want to sit down and and really go at that argument but the one that you know that that puts just as arbitrary a dividing line between you know between a, a dolphin and a human mm-hmm. and one thing is sacred and one is disposable it's just like yeah uh, uh, examine your own presumptions about when life begins and what it's worth and uh and you'll find that they are just as arbitrary the 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 challenge of being a human being is trying to the challenge for me of being like a humanist is trying to examine every one of these things on your own every day and the and the benefit of religion or political ideology is that you don't have to examine it. You accept large tracts of knowledge that are handed down to you by your, by the, the ancient sages. And that sort of forgives you so you can go out and, and manage your day without having to wrestle every day with, with these questions and without having to, to handle the instability of changing your mind repeatedly over time. Right. I mean, I've never had a, I've never had an, an uncomplicated feeling about really any of these questions. And, and, and a woman's right to choose has become a defensive bulwark that has taken on a, taken on a sort of, form of uh sacredness right i mean uh, the the god is different but in order to combat this assault of um of people using the word sacred 
you know, this, and in a lot of cases, violent assault, um, people on the other side have, have developed these sort of phrases and this idea that a woman's right to choose is sacred. Also each person's individual right to choose for themselves, what happens to their body is now an article of faith from the, from the humanist side or from the left. And that's another thing that's difficult to examine. I don't disagree with it, but it's a, but in order to, to live a truly sort of life of the mind, you have to reconsider that every day. You have to, you have to reconsider it during each sort right, of, right. Uh, uh, you have to reconsider it anew for each question. Like this, this person committed 80 murders and ate his victims. Is his life also, I mean, does he have the, does he have the same rights that we do? Like, what do we do with, what do we do with the, uh, the extremes of hum- humanity, right? And I know that the Catholics would not execute um, the murderer because it isn't our place to kill him, right? The human life is sacred up to and including the person that, um, that has committed heinous crimes. But not all Catholics that ascribe to that belief are also vocal pacifists. Some are like the great, the great priests who fight all war and all violence. But there are an awful lot of Catholics who expend a lot of energy in, in one direction, preserving the sacredness of human life, who do not seem to have a ton of objection to us drone carpet bombing mm-hmm people in the mountains of Pakistan. And that's a sort of inconsistency that it's not my place to examine, but you know, I, I, I highly recommend that kind of self-examination. 